Good morning, welcome, hello, uh, good to have visitors here again uh, this morning. Uh, my name's Raj. Uh, if you're new uh, to Jubilee, please feel very at home uh, this morning. It's great to have you. Nothing is expected of you. Enjoy, make friends, drink coffee, even eat donuts. And, but but we really, we'd really like you to kind of take what's happening here in, because actually God is on the move. God is on the move. Really came out of our prophetic, um, uh, the prayer meeting the other night. We felt a real kind of push that God is on the move in Jubilee. And you know what? It would be great for more and more people to be on that journey. If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, the book of Jonah. We're we're going to be finishing chapter 1. We're going through it line by word. We're going to be line by line. We're going to be finishing chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 11 to 17 this morning. Jonah 1, 11 to 17. If you haven't got a Bible, we'll be putting it up on the screen later, so no worries. As many of you know who come regularly to Jubilee, we've started our new sermon series, Jonah from Running to Revival. And, just an in- and so just as an introduction, really, this morning, um, I thought I'd start with this overview film from the Bible Project. Uh, if you haven't seen these films, they're excellent resources. They're excellent films. If you want to look at different books of the Bible, they're excellent films that are going to help you um, understand uh, as you embark on reading one of the books. So this is the Bible Project's little film on Jonah. Excellent. This is a book that messes with you and me. And as we've been studying it, it certainly has been doing that. Um, so let's read Jonah 1, 11 to 17. The sea, <clears throat> the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, uh, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, you have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Thank you, Lord. I pray um, that we will... um, that we will be open to this book messing with us, that we will see the Jonah in each and every one of us. I pray, Holy Spirit, as you fall upon us now, as I open up these words, I pray that let this teaching be of the Holy Spirit, that we will receive God the Holy Spirit this morning in a way that galvanizes, that changes us, that motivates us to show the love of Jesus everywhere we go. We pray, Lord, that you challenge us, you provoke us, to who you want us to be and the purposes you have with us, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, two questions that I often come across um, um, when people are sceptical or questioning Christianity, if you like, uh, uh, or what makes it harder for them to believe are these. One, 
I can't believe Christi, what Christianity has to, do, to say when so many of you are so fanatical or just plain hypocrites. You like my friends. Um, there, are also, there are so many people who are not religious and whose lives are much kinder and moral than the Christians I know. That's one question that some of my friends uh, uh, tell me about. Another one, uh, and Jonah would fit that bill, wouldn't he? Throughout this book and even here in these verses, we've just read the sailors behave better than Jonah does. Yeah, we see that. Second is a similar um, question, but on a wider, bigger scale. It goes something like this. The church has been the cause of, of so much war and injustice over the years. If Christianity is the true religion, I don't buy it. I don't want anything to do with it looking at history. Good questions, actually. Very good questions. What do we say? And I think Jonah helps us with this. Um, so I think there are three issues that we need to deal with that often puts a wall up, if you like, for people understanding and believing what Christianity really declares. Okay? Um, so the first thing is character flaws. That's what we really got across uh, from that film, didn't we? What I love about Jubilee is that we're a group of people from all walks of life that we all have very varied stories. Our backgrounds and upbringings are so diverse. Um, but in the midst of all of that, our lives are also full of hardship, difficulties, often brokenness, messes, disorder. People looking in might not like what they see necessarily. You see, the church, Jubilee, is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I remember praying in the woodshed on Portrack, and that's where we used to hold our prayer meetings, probably about some 15 years ago, and a guy called Ray prophesied that God is shaping the church, shaping a church where out there looks like in here. That the poor and the sick and the marginalized and the broken and the chaotic would find shelter and release in Jubilee. Steve Whittington prophesied that over us in terms of a picture of a tree. That's what our name is about too, Jubilee. Fifteen years later, look what we have. That is increasingly becoming more the case. When you look into the lives of church family, of course you will see character flaws and blemishes and calamity. Um, probably more so than outside the church. That's what the church is about. If you think about it, why should you expect otherwise? In Isaiah 58, God expresses this point in an interesting dialogue, a fascinating, fascinating dialogue, Isaiah 58. He says, uh, Isaiah, another prophet, shouted out aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, says God. Declare to my people their rebellion and sins. For day after day they seek me out, in other words, they are religious people, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right. God, why have we fasted, they say, and, have, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves? And you have not noticed. This is what, this is what the dialogue between the people of God and uh, Isaiah declaring the people of God and the people are saying. We've gone through the outward motions of church and religion. That's what they're saying. What's the problem, God? We're keeping the rules. And God's response to this is pretty 
startling, phenomenal really. He says this, yes, you are worshipping, yes, you are praying, yes, you are fasting, you're following the rules and the regulations, but is that what you really think I want? That's what God says through Isaiah. Then God shocks them into silence. Let me tell you what fasting looks like, he says. Let me tell you what worship looks like, he says. Let me tell you what seeking me out is all about. It's this. To loose the chains of injustice. To set the oppressed free. And break every yoke. To share food with the hungry. And to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them. And not to turn away from my own flesh and blood. That is God's heart for the church. And therefore we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that many Christians have, shall we say, issues. I probably have most of them. Christianity teaches about what is known as the doctrine of common grace. Many of you will have heard that. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. This means that whatever good you see, no matter who performs it actually, um, every act of goodness, wisdom, justice, beauty, is empowered by God. Tim Keller, a a Bible teacher um, from New York, he says this, the Christian God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty and skill graciously in a completely unmerited way. He casts them across all humanity, regardless of religious conviction, race, gender, or any other attribute, to enrich and brighten and and preserve the world. In fact, the central message of the Bible is that we can only have a relationship with God by sheer grace. He needs to move in our lives. He needs to make what's dead and rotting in us come to life. That's what the Apostle Paul said bursts out in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Therefore, the church should be filled with immature and broken people who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, spiritually. The Christian life, you see, is a journey. It's what the Bible refers to as sanctification. Yes, when we first invited Jesus into our lives, I think Jody read it out, we were dead to sin and alive to Christ. That happened immediately, instantly. But the outworking of that victory takes time. Sanctification is that progressive, bit by bit, Um, experience by experience, work between God and you and me. We are being transformed much like Jesus himself. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. I know Deborah's not here this morning, but Deborah really shared her heart on the last day, devoted a group with a real rawness and real realness in, in, in the midst of worship, how she thanked Jesus for her journey so far. And, and I just feel that there are many Deborahs across uh, Teesside, many Rajas across Teesside that God wants to bring into the church 
and turn their lives around. What Deborah said that day has been ringing through my head over the last few days. It's really powerful, and God is shaping people like Deborah, like uh, Jabba, like Raj, like Liz, like Luke, like all of us, to shape the world around us. Romans 5, 4 says, But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. God changes us, as the great reformist Martin Luther said. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that leaves us alone. Let that sink in. So if the church is doing God's business properly, we should expect to see many Christians' lives that wouldn't compare necessarily well with non-religious people, just as the health of those in a hospital is not as great as those visiting museums. Of course there are Jonahs in the church. That's why we look at passages like this. That's why Jonah was written. The second issue of our age that makes people distance themselves from Christianity, if you like, is injustice and violence allegedly done in the name of Jesus. We hear that regularly, don't we? In Christopher Hitchens, he's a famous, well, he's died now, he's a famous um, atheist writer. In Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, he has a chapter titled, Religion kills, just in case you were, were just in case you were slightly confused, you probably gathered what he thinks about Christianity so far. And in this chapter, he gives personal accounts of religiously fueled violence in places like Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Belgrade, Baghdad. He writes, religion is not unlike racism. Very powerful statement. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. Religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. His argument is that religion takes racial and cultural differences and stirs them up and and aggravates them. And actually, the reality reality, um, reality does play out. We can't just disagree with what some of these guys say, what these, what these guys perceive as the truth. It looks like that from the outside. We cannot excuse the terrible things that are done in the name of religion or have been done in the name of religion over the years. And therefore, I sympathize with views like that because, um, because of what they see on the news, on the TV, not always portrayed correctly. But you know what? These are real perceptions. I used to think that myself. However, the more and more I tried to reason this out, I found there were issues in my thinking. For instance, when I looked at history, there have been regimes that have barred religion and faith altogether. Yet still, the atrocities continued. Whether you look at communist Russia, China, Cambodia, they all rejected organized religion and belief in God, but injustice and violence still played out. That got me thinking as I was curious about this faith. Is it religion or not? Oxford professor and priest Alistair McGrath points out that when God is gone, people groups seem to make God out of something else in order to make them feel morally 
and spiritually superior. In the French Revolution, they rejected God for human reason, Rousseau and all those guys. Yet in their, yet in their rational and secular worldview, they did terrible things to one another. In the Marxists made the power made the power of the state their god. Nazis made their made race and their bloodline their god. There seems to be at the heart of humanity a greater sin, a deeper transgression, if you like, that runs right through the middle of all of us. Somerset Morgan, a playwright, an English playwright, said, if I wrote down every thought I have, every thought and every deed that I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. That's what he said. So character flaws are not a reason. So where are we? Character flaws are not a reason to disbelieve Christianity. That's, what, that's the conclusion I came to. In fact, they point to a greater, gracious, loving, merciful, transforming God who seemingly picks people randomly and turns them around through faith. Secondly, without religion, war, violence and injustice continues. The reason is more complex than we think. At the heart of humanity, you and me, there is a greater, if you like, cancer that only God can heal and put right. Finally, and probably the greatest deterrent in our culture today towards religion is that of fanaticism. Religious fanatics. What actually is that? What do we actually mean by fanaticism? Well, I think it's when people practice and voice their religion in a more committed, possibly over-committed and over-enthusiastic way. Sometimes when people argue for their faith rooted in such deep, deep convictions, they can seem intolerant or self-righteous. That's what fanaticism, I think, is. That's what we think when we hear about religious fanatics on TV. And society has come to address this kind of um, this kind of problem in, in this, ki this kind of problem in a way that says, okay, on the it kind of addresses it in the uh, kind of by drawing a line. Uh, at one end of the line, there are those who practice their faith obsessively, what we what some people would call fanatical nut jobs. And then on the other side, there are those who there are those who are Christian just by name. Wet blankets. Fanatical nut jobs, wet blankets. Fanatics are over here, wet blankets. Nominal Christians are over here. And the way society wants us to deal with that is that the world wants us to be somewhere in the middle. Someone who believes it, but doesn't go all the way. I used to think that too. But unfortunately, once again, the more I've thought about it, there's a problem with that too. If your religion is all about moral improvement, and I get this, if your religion is all about moral improvement, trying to get yourself into God's books all the time by how you behave, then naturally, those who are fanatical will look self-righteous and tut-tutting all the time. They will look high and mighty and convey a sense of superiority, maybe looking down on others who don't share the same values. At its worst, it may lead to various forms of abuse and exclusion and oppression. I think that is one of the problems with religion, actually. But the more I looked into Christianity as a 20-something-year-old 20, 20 guy and what Jesus said, I realized that 
Christianity was different. He was different. It wasn't religion. It was actually grace. You see, when you look at Jesus' life, he mainly had problems and bust-ups with those uh, in the, with those who in the name of religion tried to be morally superior. The Pharisees, the religious, high-standing bods of the time. If you like the Jonas of his day. In Matthew 23 we see a critique of how Jesus dealt with religious moralists, do-gooders. He says, they pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders and won't lift a finger to help. Everything they do is just to show off in front of others. They even make a big show off of wearing scripture verses on their foreheads and arms and they wear big tassels for everyone to see. They love the best seats at banquets and the front seats in the meeting place. You Pharisees and teachers of the law, these are Jesus' words, uh, you Pharisees and teachers of the law are in for trouble. You're nothing but show-offs. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You You won't go in yourself and you keep others from going in. You travel over land and sea to win one follower and then you have, and when you have done so, you make that person twice as fit for hell as you are. You are blind. You are fools, Pharisees. You wash the outside of your cups and dishes while inside there is nothing but greed and selfish selfishness. You're like tombs, Pharisees. You've been been whitewashed. On the outside they are beautiful, but inside they are full of bones and filth. You are nothing but snakes and the children of snakes. How can you escape from going to hell? I love Jesus' subtlety, by the way. Both Jesus and Paul had big issues with those who tried to get right with God through their good behavior. In fact, both said that wasn't Christianity at all. That's why Jesus hung out and ate with all the wrong people. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers, the adulterers, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. Listen, the issue with fanaticism, hear this, the issue with fanaticism is not fanaticism itself, but what you're actually fanatical about. If you're, if you're fanatical about moral improvement and following the rules to get right with God, you'll either do well and look down on others or do really badly and feel guilty and ashamed all the time. Most of us spend our lives bouncing between one and the other. But the gospel is different. Jesus is different. For you and me, when faced with the world's issues of war and injustice and poverty, the answer isn't to tone down our beliefs. It's not to be Christians in moderation. No way. We must up our faith. We must up our love. We must up our kindness. We must up our grace. We must up our sacrifices. That's what we should be fanatical about. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, we are still determined to use the weapon of love. He was fanatical about his, about his gracious God. In fact, the more you don't take your faith seriously, the more you actually look like a Pharisee. I often think of that myself sometimes. I think, God, am I more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee? An outward show, doing the bare minimum. 
Listen, on the cross, Jesus was fanatical about us. He was fanatical about you. He was fanatical about me. Bomb after bomb came crashing down on the Son of God so that we could be saved. Like Jonah, this is something that Joy just drew this morning. And, and it's actually a storm. So I didn't particularly tell him to do, do a storm, but he... He obviously drew a sea and a storm and he said, Daddy, there's loads of rain in that cloud. Um, and then I think this is a boat and I asked it with a tree on it for some reason. Um, but it's a boat. And, and I actually asked him, who's that? Thinking, my son's a genius. He's going to say Jonah. But he said Jesus. And I thought, oh. But you know what? Jonah is a type of Jesus. The story of Jonah is a type of Jesus to us. Like Jonah, Jesus said, throw me into the greatest storm of all, hell itself, where God is silent, where, God's, where, where righteous justice happened, the judgment of God. Father, not my will, Jesus said, but yours be done. On the cross, Jesus paid the price that we all deserve for all of our dishonor and disregard and disbelief of the life giver, the joy giver, the greatest gift giver. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. John 3.16 famously said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is a type of Jonah. Jonah, I think, gets a glimpse of God's grace actually in this passage that changes him. He realizes that he must sacrifice to save. He realizes that he must be more like God, not less. He realizes that obedience is motivated by the realization that God is good and knows best. I'm going to end with this. The famous Lutheran martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, was pastoring two German-speaking churches in London during the war when Hitler came to power, actually. And he refused to stay in the safety of England and instead went back to host an illegal conference for the churches that refused to sign an, an oath of allegiance to the Nazis. In his letters from prison, Bonhoeffer reveals how the gospel works, how his Christianity, fanatical to the utmost, gave him the resources to give up everything for the sake of others. His joy and hope in Jesus made his life and arrest and torture an eventual hanging possible. This is what he said. It is not a religious act that makes a Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular day-to-day -day life. This is repentance. Not in the first place thinking about one's own needs, problems, sin and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus Christ. Pain is a holy angel, he says. Through him, pain, men have become greater than through all the joys this, of this world. The pain of longing, which often can be felt physically, must be there, and we shall not and need not talk it away, but it needs to be overcome every time. 
And thus, there is even, there's an even holier angel than the one of pain. And that is the one of joy in God. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you that you are a type of Jonah. I thank you, Lord, that you know, this story revealed to us reveals something about you, the greater Jonah. I thank you, Lord, that you um, want your glorious church to shine. I thank you, Lord, that you know, we're not about religion, we're about grace. And I pray, Lord God, for more and more faith-filled, Jesus-motivated, joy-bringing fanatics about the grace of God in this church so that many may see what a glorious God you are. I pray, Lord God, that we'll be a real testimony and a joy and a love to many of our Muslim brothers across Teesside. I pray, Lord God, that we would share our lives with them, that we would share our food with them, that we would, sh- that we would make contact in a way that shows them that Jesus shines through us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will all be challenged as we live life, that, this, that you move us every day as the Gospels and the letters of Paul continually tell us about, as we move more and more and rely more and more for your grace, rather than being the elder brother of the prodigal son story. Holy Spirit, come upon us, be with us, change us, love us. In Jesus' name, amen.